0: Hello and welcome to Beth DeKuhn and this series called Spiritual Seasons, where we are exploring the Torah portions in the light of God's spiritual curriculum for the year. Today we are in Parsha Shemini, Leviticus 9 to 11. So let's get right into the portion with a summary. The portion can be divided into two seemingly unrelated parts. The events of the concluding eighth day of inaugurating the tabernacle, it's on one side. And the laws of clean and unclean food, kashrut, including how dead animals transfer uncleanness. That's the other part. The portion's name means eighth and refers to the first part that I mentioned just now, uh, the events that happen on the eighth day of inaugurating the tabernacle. So the portion begins on the eighth day, and then it goes on to describe those eighth day events. So a lot happens on the eighth day. Uh, It's a very intense day, especially for Aaron and his family. It included what would probably be both the highest point in Aaron's life, followed immediately by the lowest point. In the previous chapter, (coughs) we witnessed Moses anointing Aaron and his sons for service, and it was Moses who was performing the sacrificial offerings for the process of the inauguration, not Aaron. Moses finished that first part of Aaron's inauguration by telling Aaron and his sons that they had to stay in the tabernacle for seven days. And then the inauguration would be complete. So it's almost like Aaron and his sons have to die and be reborn to a new kind of service. They die through the inauguration sacrifices that Moses does on their behalf And then their whole first week of new life is within the tabernacle. And so it kind of makes them creatures of the tabernacle. And so they are then (coughs) able to, you know, be dwellers in the tabernacle and work in the tabernacle. Well, on the eighth day, Aaron and his sons are now (coughs) fully inaugurated and can begin doing the service themselves. You know, not have Moses do it for them. So after the people of Israel bring him a number of animals for the korbanot that he will offer on their behalf, the whole nation gathers around before the Lord. Aaron first offers a bull and a ram for himself. Then he does four types of korbanot, four offerings for the whole nation. And these are the first ones being done on behalf of the whole nation. Uh, he does a sin offering, an olah, a whole burnt offering, a peace offering, and a grain offering. And then Aaron lifts his hands and blesses the people. And the rabbis say that that was Aaron doing the Aaronic blessing. Later, Moses and Aaron bless the people together. And at that point, the glory of the Lord appears to the people and the fire Fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes the pieces that are on the altar, the sacrificial pieces that are on the altar, causing the people to yell out and to fall on their faces in worship. So in the next chapter, we read the tragic story. This is the middle chapter of the portion. We read the story of the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, which seems to also have happened on the eighth day. They are struck dead when they offer incense to the Lord that the text calls strange fire. It was not done according to the laws of the Korbanot or according to what God had said was proper uh, for bringing an offering of incense to him. So, Moses tells Aaron that he must not mourn them yet. It's a day of celebration that the inauguration of the tabernacle um but he says let the nation mourn for them he then calls in Moses does two relatives to carry the bodies out of the tabernacle and leaving Aaron and his sons to you know complete what what must be done on that day and they must have just been absolutely stunned um finishing out The events of the eighth day that needed to be done. So finally, in the third chapter, the last chapter of the portion, we are given the dietary laws, the laws of animals that are clean and therefore acceptable to eat and those that aren't. Well, one thing to notice here about this portion is that it is yet another portion connected to the building and setting up of the tabernacle. And that started all the way back in Parsha Terumah, which was Exodus 25. In fact, this portion called eighth is the eighth portion in a row that is closely connected to this one topic of the tabernacle and setting it up, getting it going. So this should speak to us, all these portions, eight in a row here, it should speak to us about just how very important this concept of the tabernacle is to God. What we are seeing in the tabernacle and the service there is a primary picture of how a redeemed people live with God in their midst. With this topic so critical in the Torah, maybe one way we can think about the Torah is this. God desires to dwell among us, within us, but in order to do that, We must be a clean people, and the various laws of the Torah are reflecting to us what that clean life looks like. It's all training us in purity so that God can live with us, right? We have so much here about this tabernacle. God wants to live with us, and so maybe that's one of the main ways we should see all that the Torah has to tell us. It's because he wants to live with us and in our midst. Well, let's return now to the name of the Torah portion, which is its always a great launching off point for going deeper in the portion because the name is a description of the essence of the portion. So this is the only um, Torah portion that is named for a number, the number eight, uh, specifically the eighth day of inaugurating the temple as, or the tabernacle, as we said. Well, let's talk about the number eight. Hebraically, seven is the number that signifies completion of a natural cycle, the fullness of the natural order. The world is designed to function according to the natural order, and it's created in seven days. We even have a tradition of separating the colors of the rainbow into seven, and the Western musical scale is based on seven notes. There's a mathematical reason for doing that. Um, Of course we have the seven days of the week is another example of seven that is uh, the completion of the natural cycle. So eight, what is eight then? Eight signifies the miraculous transcendence of the natural order. And that's a word we're going to be using a lot today. It is one beyond the natural. When we break out of seven and get into eight, it means that we have been granted mastery over the natural so that we can use it for spiritual purposes rather than merely natural purposes. We see the same idea in circumcision on the eighth day. The cutting away of the foreskin is a mastery of the physical so that the flesh can be used for spiritual purposes and not merely natural purposes. It is a statement that the flesh of this boy is dedicated to holy purposes. So what does this idea of rising above the natural into the supernatural have to do with this portion? Why is this one, these topics, why are these topics connected to the supernatural? Well, first of all, let's note the portion's close connection to Passover. We are reading this portion in the week of unleavened bread this year. So Passover is all about transcending to a higher level, being raised up. It is about freedom from the authoritarian rule of the flesh, being set free so that we can live for God according to our true design. And one important aspect of our design for the godly life is worshiping God according to God's ways and we read about worship in Shemini. Transcendence, right? This is when the worship, that service at the tabernacle is getting going. So transcendence is closely connected to worship. If we are transcending, everything we do in life becomes worship. Recall what Moses keeps saying to Pharaoh, right? We're reading this now at the Passover time. That whole story is in our minds. And what does Uh, Moses keeps saying to Pharaoh, he keeps, because God told him to say this, he says, let the people go so that we can worship God. So there's an emphasis in the Passover story on worship. Here with the beginning of the tabernacle service is the clear fulfillment of what Moses was asking for. Israel worshiping God in the way that God had prescribed for them. And so there is this close connection between the Passover story and this Torah portion and this beginning of worship at the tabernacle. What are the sacrifices picturing, if not freedom, from the authoritarian rule of the flesh, right? It's very much a lot of overlap between the Passover story and the idea of the sacrificial system, right? So let me say that another way coming out of egypt which we focus on now in the passover season is freedom from the rule of the flesh right that's what egypt and pharaoh represent and it is also connected tr- to true worship of god let us go so that we can worship god worship of him with our entire lives and what we do at the tabernacle is also freedom from the rule of the flesh, and true worship of God with our entire lives. It's a burning up and elevating of the flesh. Passover and worship at the tabernacle are kind of like two sides of one coin. They are similar pictures of freedom for service. And this transcendence is all connected to the number eight. But I want to point out here that None of the previous seven portions that have to do with the tabernacle are named after the number of transcendence. So why this portion? We are fully reaching a point of transcendence only here because having the plan and making the preparations aren't enough to transcend. Planning and preparing are what one through seven are about, the previous seven portions. That finished with Aaron's inauguration. All of that is preparatory, it's preparation. The transcendence doesn't start until the tabernacle begins to be used in what we sometimes call the real world, in the lower world of the physical that touches the lives of the whole nation of Israel, right? Aaron does um, Korbanot on behalf of the whole nation. He finally starts the work. That's when we're reaching this point of transcendence. So there's an important point here we should notice. Transcendence doesn't mean that the physical is inactivated or put aside somehow. It's the opposite. Transcendence is connected to increased physicality and effective and efficient doing in this natural realm. When we say transcend we don't mean go and live on a mountaintop and pray all day in our growth process in our process of transcendence in our salvation process we find that as the physical pathways are controlled you know we get mastery over the flesh and as they're directed properly according to our true identity more and more of the spirit can pour outward through us So here's my point. The physical and spiritual always go hand in hand. Look at human development here as an example. A child is spiritually immature, right? A child is spiritually immature and also physically small. An adult who is much bigger physically is much more capable of being a vessel for the spirit to to flow through Into this world, right? We're to be streams of living water for a dry and thirsty land. So, this means that if we are looking for spiritual maturity, we should be looking for how someone is sacrificing their flesh, their energy, their time, their resources for others. The two have to come together. It's not just about what they know and what they can teach, it's about what they are doing, it's about their whole walk, the fruit in the rest of their lives also. So first fruits is, is very connected to this time. We're counting the Omer, which is connected to first fruits. And in the calendar, it's kind of the picture that speaks to us of the ultimate transcendence, at the beginning anyway, of the cycle. We have this picture called first fruits. The strong physical component of firstfruits is put to use for the flow of the spirit, spiritual purposes. Well, last week, we didn't really emphasize the spirit in first fruits. We were talking about first fruits as the third and final part of, of the picture of a seed that included spirit, soul, and body. And um, so we were emphasizing the physical aspect of first fruits. And we said that the barley flour is in the oil. Those are physical components of bread. Not quite bread yet. Physical components of bread. They're barley flour, which is a very earthy um, food that is animal fodder. Right? We're talking about the animal side, the flesh. And um, in doing the first fruits offering, the whole new harvest is unlocked. The food, the physical food is unlocked. For the nation of Israel, these are all physical components of first fruits. but this strong physical side to first fruit is only one side to it. If first fruits is a picture of the end goal, if we could even call it the finalization of the seed for growth for the year, then it cannot be primarily focused on physicality despite the strong physical aspect to it. Rather, the real goal of the third day, the real goal of the third moed is that it's, it's focused on bringing forth the right physical vessel for pouring out the spirit. You know, that spirit that has been mostly locked up within by the flesh, by the flesh being in control, it's let out. That's what we're, that's our goal. Did you notice that um, unlike the Seder or unleavened bread, fruits is actually an expression of worship. It's a korban at the temple. At fruits, the priests offer to God at the tabernacle or temple a small gift, right? Three and a half pounds of fine barley flour. They wave it before the Lord as a sacrificial offering. It's a moment of worship. So in other words, let me just say that point again. Although first fruits has a strongly physical component to it, and that's the completion of a kind of seed, that physicality is not the true goal. First fruits is not merely physical. First fruits is the goal of the salvation picture because more than the first two of Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits shows us what it looks like to put the physical to work for spiritual purposes. Again, the physical development and pouring out of the spirit go hand in hand. The goal is not to deny the physical. The goal is not to merely develop the physical for its own sake. The goal is to control and develop the physical for spiritual purposes, to provide channels in this lowest realm for the spirit to flow through to do the work of the spirit, the bringing of heaven to earth. This is how we transcend mere physicality. So the fact that this portion in particular is named Shemini is showing us that it's not enough to hear and understand and plan and prepare. It's not until we start doing that we start transcending. And I say start transcending here because we are early in the calendar and we are still early in the Exodus story here too. The eighth day of the second year in the world wilderness. Now some say it's actually still the first of Nisan in that they were setting it up and practicing all the way up until the first of Nisan. Um, One or the other, maybe this is the eighth day of the second year. They're not very long into this whole exodus thing, which is going to go on for 40 years until they get into the wilderness. We're just in year two here. So these are first steps. These are baby steps in walking at a higher level. We're learning to transcend at a higher level now. And we see missteps here with the story of Nadav and Avihu. You know, a baby falls a lot. When it's learning to walk, God kind of makes us rubbery so that we don't, you know, our bones are a little softer. So we don't, um, you know, mess our bodies up too much in the process here. But we fall a lot, too, as we're learning to walk at a higher level with God. First, God raises us up to a higher level, and we can think of that as a free gift. But then we have to learn how to walk there and God will help us like a father or a mother helps a baby that is learning to walk. So notice that the beginning of this process is God raising us up. It is God who personally opens the womb to deliver the child. It's important that we recognize this work of God's grace because We might be getting a little frustrated thinking it's the season for going higher. How do I go higher? What do I have to do? How will my efforts to change this time, right, in this cycle be any different from my efforts to change before? You know, if we've been frustrated in that before. Well, there is some work to do, but we begin that work by resting in God's free gift, his grace expressed through the blood of the lamb. And Grant has often pointed out to us that um, God asks Israel to do very little at the beginning of the journey with him. They're to take the blood of that lamb and they're to apply it to their doorways, have a small meal. And um, He does ask for this small gesture, right? They do have to do that. It's a gesture of obedience. And he always asks for that gesture of obedience in the real world, right? The tangible world. But in the end, it is God who does all the heavy lifting here at the beginning of the salvation journey. And so, praise the Lord for that. It is God who breaks Egypt's back. It is God who drowns Pharaoh's army in the sea, And the fact that God is, by his grace, lifting us up here at the beginning is absolutely critical, right? It's critical. So listen again to the pattern. First, God raises us up to a new level, and then we learn to walk at that level with his help. Our part begins with simply trusting that he is doing this work of raising us up now. If we don't believe, we won't actualize it, and from that place of trust, we pay attention to what he's bringing and how he's speaking in this time, and we move when he says move, and we do what we can, and if we stumble, we get back up and keep trusting in him. So what is this whole life you know, about if we don't believe that he's going to help us to grow and change here? It starts with trusting that he is making that available to us. We can change, and that change change begins as a free gift. So take hold of that, believe it, trust him in this. In talking about just the subject of God's gracious work to lift us up at this time, Rabbi Shays Taub, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, teaches that It's cruel to tell someone to jump to the next level when they have already tried many times and failed many times to change. And sometimes, even in their trying, they have just dug themselves a deeper hole. That can be, you know, that can happen when we fall off the wagon and slide into a deeper pit than before. It can also happen when we go deep into what we think are our strengths to try to solve The problem. And so Rabbi Taub explains, and I'm really paraphrasing, rephrasing what he said here, but one problem we can run into here is that our God given strengths become corrupted by Egypt, where we learn to rely on our strengths to cope and to survive. So maybe we learned how to use our quick humor to divert attention when we kind of mess up and, uh, or get what we think we need. Or maybe we learn to use a love of detail to get praise through perfectionism. Maybe we you know leaned into our people skills to be the life of the party to get the praise and the sense of self-worth we seek. And so once we see that something is seriously amiss in our lives and our relationships are suffering we will probably lean even harder into our strengths to try to solve our problems. And in the end, our imbalance just makes everything worse. You're just becoming more of that person who's stuck, right? And so it's cruel to say, try again and watch someone sink deeper into their issues. All we have to work with is who we are. And if who we are is smothered in Egypt, then our efforts will only make things worse. We need something higher than us to lift us out of Egypt. And then we start walking from that higher place. Again, it is God who opens the womb, but then we learn how to walk with him once we are born again. So having said that, it starts with his gracious act of rebirth. Let's shift now to our part, because we also have a part to play in this process. And we already mentioned that one of our parts comes at the beginning and is particularly small, a small gesture of obedience. For Israel, it was applying the blood of the lamb, as we said. For us, one way we make the small gesture at this time of year is by simply doing the Seder. But in another sense, we show our faith and obedience by simply expressing to God that we trust him for deliverance, particularly at this time of year. we, We say we trust him for deliverance, and we really believe it, and we do the work of believing and the work of trusting. Let's say you maybe missed doing a Seder this year, which is kind of a way to express What's going on in our hearts and our belief and what God is doing in our lives? Well, maybe you missed that. Well, you can say a prayer even now like this. And so you can say this prayer out loud even. God, I trust you. I trust that in the same way that you delivered Israel out of Egypt, you are in this season delivering me now. You are a gracious God. And I trust in the blood of the true lamb who is Yeshua slain from the foundation of the world for all mankind. I claim that blood on the doorway of my heart now, and I trust you to pass me one step higher out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. I trust that you have a whole year of learning and victory ahead for me, and I rejoice in that now, I again offer you my life entirely, and thank you. And so I'll include that prayer in the outline for this video, so there will be a link posted below. Remember that God wants us to do a little something concrete to show outwardly where our hearts are and our purpose to obey. He requires us to bring out into this lowest realm the intentions of our hearts, to humble ourselves, and submit to him for renewal and restoration and healing, right? So there's a humbling involved in, in making that statement to him. So this is step one for what we do. Step two can be stated rather quickly. Give everything in your entire life over to him, and he will show you how to make every aspect of your life holy and fill it with his spirit and use it in his kingdom for life. That's all. (laughs) Grant would often give us a quote that I think came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that went something like this. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Learning to walk at a higher level means learning how to even more deeply say, my wife is not mine but yours, or my husband does not belong to me but to you, Help me to treat my spouse as you would. These kids are not my kids. They are your kids. Help me to raise them up as you would. This job is not my job. This house is not my house. This bank account is not mine, but yours. The process of salvation starts with God's free gift, but in the end, it costs us everything. And it's the only way to really live. And it's peace and its joy, and its real productivity, and deep relationship with God and others around us. Well, let's drill down now a bit on the idea that we are learning to walk at this higher level now. The rabbis give us a little direction in doing this. They give us direction by pointing us to a particular area of the soul. They say God is helping us to work on right now. During the counting of the Omer, the nefesh. We have learned many times that the nefesh is often called the animal soul or the animal side of the soul. And what have we been reading about in Leviticus? We've been reading about sacrificing mostly animals, animal sacrifices, korbanot. And this Omer period is also connected to the barley harvest. And we said barley is considered food for animals. So this. Whole of the Omer period refers back to this first fruits offering of one Omer of animal food, barley flour. We count one day of the Omer and two days of the Omer and onward until the 50th day. And so if we are offering the lowest possible korban at this time, submitting that to death and elevation on the altar... The renewal God will respond with in this season is the renewal of the lowest aspect of the soul, right? If we submit that to death, well, that's what he has to work with to raise up to new life. That lowest aspect of the soul, the animal side of the soul. It is here in this realm, the rabbis say, this realm of the nefesh that we take our first baby steps in the year. So the nefesh is sometimes described as our instinctual drives and appetites. And our emotions are a bridge region that also reach into this part of the soul. The emotions also go up higher. Animals are described as functioning nearly entirely off their drives and emotions, instinct, rather than the intellect. There is nothing inherently wrong with these drives, without the drive for comfort we wouldn't make homes without the drive for hunger we wouldn't keep our bodies alive without the drive to procreate we wouldn't create a new generation and humanity would die out quickly on the earth the problem with the nefesh comes when it is ruling us rather than our higher soul which we you know call the neshama the neshama so a baby Learning to walk has to put one foot in front of the next, even if a parent is holding them up. How can we practically help to make a little space for God to help us recreate our nefesh at this time? Talking practicalities. We can all be thinking about this question during the counting of the Omer and sharing practical ideas, and I encourage you to do that and share them with me. But I'm going to suggest one today. Today. If the nefesh is the animal side of the soul, we should maybe take the same approaches to training it that we would take when training an animal, like a dog. A dog responds to punishment, for example. So my suggestion is that this week we are intentional to take one small step away from whatever we sense is imbalanced in our walk when it comes to instinctual drives and appetites and emotional wellness This might be some form of instant gratification that the culture accepts but that we know is not healthy for us. Or maybe it's something that we know is taking time from us that could be better spent in some other way. Don't try to take a giant leap in this area. Do something small to bring correction, but be consistent with it. This consistency is absolutely critical in training An animal, right? Consistency, and to go even further, design a punishment for yourself and make it hurt for when you falter in this step, and make it something you know that you're you know you're you're readily capable of of maybe taking away from yourself. Um, Figure out how to slap yourself on the nose when you drop the ball in the area you've selected for improvement. And stick to that punishment too. You know, if I had to take away my coffee in the morning, I would think twice about whatever it is. I'm trying, you know, to bring a little correction to, you know, that would be some motivation for me. I don't know why I enjoy that cup of coffee in the morning so much. Again, as we said about doing, remember that the source of victory is not in ourselves, but it rests on the work of the Lamb and God's gracious act of deliverance. God raising us up to a higher level. Can we feel that raising up? Well, probably not. So we have to trust. It starts with trusting him for this. And from that point, we show him our hearts. However we can, we show him our faith and we keep trusting and taking steps. Well, let's take some time now to talk about Nadav and Avihu and see if we can connect them into the conversation we're having here. My first point is that the deaths of Nadav and Avihu are one of these examples of how God is very strict at the beginning of a major stage of development. And here we are at the very beginning of this cycle of growth in the year. Um, and so we're we're reading about Nadav and Avihu, and it's actually a kindness of God, because you know, that strictness at the beginning. Because if the embryo doesn't form properly, the whole process of development will be affected. The leaven of the world. I think God has His own kind of leaven, and it's pure and it's clean, but the leaven of the world is not allowed in at the beginning because it will have a vast influence later. Nadav and Avihu's innovation in worshiping God, it was a kind of leaven, a worldly leaven, and it had to be dealt with harshly in the moment for the good of the nation. If they would have been allowed to transgress God's boundaries at that point, that first moment, then there would be no boundaries, you know, moving forward. Instead, their deaths became a great source of motivation to, say exactly, to stay exactly within God's Torah regarding the service at the tabernacle that is so critical for Israel. It's critical for Israel to draw near to God, what's happening, that service at the tabernacle. It's such an important service. So this was the formation moment of this vast realm of connection to God, and the formative moments had to be done right. Last week, we connected Ananias and Sapphira to this idea of walking very carefully in such formative moments and God's strictness. It's a strictness that is meant for life, even though in the moment it's death. So beyond this lesson about strictness at the beginning, a second point I want to suggest here is that maybe Nadav and Avihu were created for exactly this moment. Maybe this was the fulfillment of their lives, what they were designed for. One clue that points us in that direction is the fact that we are told in a couple of places in Scripture that somewhat strangely, Nadav and Avihu both did not have children. In Numbers 3, it says, But Nadav and Avihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father, right? Those two other sons of Aaron. So could it be that God prevented them from marrying and having children because he had created them for a different purpose? It is a great lesson that God teaches through these two men, a lesson that helps to keep a generation on the straight path. In Romans 9, Paul says that God raised up Pharaoh to show his power. And he says that the, the pot has no right to rise up and ask the potter why it was made as it was. And that the potter has the right to take one lump of clay and use half of it to make a vessel for honorable use. And the other half, a vessel for dishonorable use. Right? Actually, there are four sons. Half of them went this way and half of them went this way. The, the deaths of these men, that, it, it seems harsh. But a child is prone to accusing the parents of being unfair because the child does not have the capacity to understand yet. How many times did I myself say it's not fair, right? If you're slapped on the hand right now, if you're punished right now, be especially quick to accept that it's for the best somehow. Understanding how God is working is not the highest priority right now. Right? We've said that a few times now. A final point here about Nadav and Avihu is that they teach us something about misplaced zeal. And this is another connection to the idea of taming the animal soul, including the emotions right? Uh, Rabbis are pointing us in the direction of the nefesh. Well, there's an expression of the nefesh that's coming through Nadav and Avihu here. So this is a good text to be reading at this time as we focus on the nefesh and the emotions. So a child is filled with zeal, right? They get so excited about everything, but they don't always channel that zeal in kosher ways, So they have to be taught how to do this. A lot of what being a child is about is learning how to properly channel your emotions. In their discussions of Nadav and Avihu, the sages bring forth the common thread that these two had a great hunger to worship God. They're very reluctant to speak negatively of people like Nadav and Avihu. They consider them spiritual giants. And so they say they had this strong hunger to worship God, to draw near to him, this enthusiasm. And in their enthusiasm, they offered a strange fire to the Lord. And Grant, in a previous Shemini teaching, points out that fire is connected to emotion and passion and zeal. So zeal is great. We can really get motivated to do when we are zealous for something, but it needs to be kept within the boundaries of Torah within the boundaries of Torah truth. Otherwise, it will result in death rather than life. So I've bumped into quite a few believers who are filled with zeal, but whose motivations for doing the work of the Lord seem slightly off. In the end, when you see some of the fruit that comes through their lives, you just end up deciding it's a strange zeal. It's a strange fire that's somehow missing the mark. These believers often prove to be unstable in their walks and in their lives in general. Sometimes this strange zeal is an openness to worshiping God in an unorthodox way that seems to lack self-control. Sometimes it's the idea that they should hear from God about every little detail in life, like what they should wear today. Maybe the root of their attraction to Torah is really founded on an attraction to Jewish culture. So something's just a little bit off there. Maybe it's a vast zeal for pointing fingers at the declining culture or other believers even. Maybe it's a single issue that they become so enamored of and so attached to that it causes separation with others. An issue like certain calendar discrepancies or... the use of extra biblical sources or how we should approach the Jewish scholarship over the centuries or what has become of the lost tribes of Israel. There are a number of these issues that people can just really latch on to and get passionate about, right? They have a zeal. Well, each of these issues does deserve some thought, but they shouldn't become all-consuming. When these things tip into imbalance, the flesh is too much present, and often the attention ends up getting placed on the person inappropriately when we are to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. There are many ways to trip in this walk of the believer. Let's pay attention to what is driving us and filling us with passion. When that passion causes us to act outside of God's instructions, it leads to instability and death as in the cases of Nadav and Avihu. Grant points out that to our eyes, fire looks like fire. Like it's all the same to us, but it's not to God. There is such a thing as holy fire, and there is a such, such a thing as common fire. Offering to God requires holy fire. The fire that burns on the bronze altar is holy And that is to be where fire for offering incense is to be taken from, not from the home or from some other common place, which may have been how Nadav and Avi who erred might have been part of their error, taking the fire from the wrong place. There is a holy zeal, and there is a zeal that is not completely set apart for God, right? might be self-serving. We're all guilty of misplaced zeal to some degree. We need to be able to delicately and lovingly speak into each other's lives about such matters. And we need to be humble to receive that correction. Well, let's take a moment now to touch on the question of what the laws of clean and unclean foods are doing here. In Hebrew, these laws are referred to as kashrut this that's the body of food laws, is called kashrut. The sudden list of kosher foods jumps out of the text at us because they seem out of place. We know that nothing is out of place, though, in the Torah. So let me suggest that we find these laws here because they are a mirror reflection of the laws of the korbanot that we've been reading about in the previous portions, the sacrificial system. The laws of the korbanot are laws of worship. And worship is spiritual and very high. Making a sacrifice is quite obviously a spiritual activity. You know what you're doing when you go to the temple or the tabernacle. You're doing, firstly, a spiritual activity. It's worship. And so, in a way, the Corbinot are focused on giving food to God, and that food is ourselves, right? We're to identify with the animal that's being sacrificed. We are the sacrifice. Well, on the other side, kashrut is not about giving our lives, but preserving them by taking in food. The laws of kashrut are focused on self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. The two sets of laws complement each other and both are foundational for spiritual and physical health. The korbanot are spiritual first and physical second. We can say that eating food, on the other hand, is physical first and spiritual second. It's just less obvious how eating is a spiritual activity, though it is a spiritual activity. Everything is spiritual. It's just less obvious how food is, or eating food. So these two sets of laws seem so very different, but both are foundational, as I said, to the idea of transcending, the, the number eight, Shemini. Well, let's talk about the great power of, of the, the laws of clean and unclean foods, um, the great power that they hold. It might not seem like it, but the dietary laws are fundamental in the life of the believer. I would have never thought this 20 years ago, but since then I've learned that these laws have a great power to help us to keep our spiritual vision clear and to gain self-control and even to witness to others we become opportunities to witness many times. The rabbis say that when we eat unclean foods, a kind of spiritual fogginess comes over us. And two, these laws are hukim or hokim laws that don't readily make sense to us. We have learned before that such laws in particular, these ones that we can't understand, uh, they go beyond our ability to understand, they carry a special kind of power with them. Our obedience to these laws is less hindered by our need to understand. So in a way, our obedience to this kind of law is based on simple faith, the faith of a child. And there's a kind of work that such obedience does in us to separate us from the world and from man's Constant desire to understand before we do. We always want to understand and then we'll do it. These laws in particular are pervasive in our daily lives too, as pervasive as food is in our day. Keeping any Torah law will help us to grow our self control, but these that deal with food, they come up, they crop up on a simple trip to the store or when ordering food from a restaurant, or when eating at a friend's house. They are present for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's interesting, too, that these are the laws that friends who don't understand that Torah is for today, they tend to sneer at these laws. But in keeping them unapologetically, we are sowing seeds in others. Well, as we take first steps in the year— at a higher level, it's appropriate to be reading about and studying such a foundational topic for our walks with the Lord, and one that's so connected to our nefesh, our appetites. You are what you eat, as they say. Much that we are and do is built on our diets, and so elevating the mundane topic of food to the level of holiness is a great gift God gives us in the laws of kashrut. If God hadn't given us these laws, we would just eat. But since he has, everything we eat now becomes a choice to be holy. And through these laws, he has shown us how the animals reflect his mind. Through the dietary laws, the world of the animals that had been opaque now begins to become transparent as it speaks its message we begin to see the light of God streaming through the whole animal kingdom in a profound way. Though we can only kind of scratch the surface there, right? we can't fully understand. But certain animals live off of death and decay and are not suitable for a holy people to eat. They are created for common purpose. purposes, right? scavengers, predators. They're created for cleaning up the earth, for example. God created other animals for higher purposes, and they graze and do not live off the death or decay of other animals. They are clean. Well, let's turn more directly to Yeshua now. We've been mentioning Yeshua along the way here, but I'd like to add one more topic here regarding Yeshua specifically. The ultimate eight, the ultimate transcendence of the natural order is what we await with the return of the Messiah, but not right away. We read about the 7th and 8th millennia of human history in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. It would seem that at Yeshua's return, first comes the period of the thousand-year reign, which is the 7th millennium of human history. At that time, only some are resurrected to reign with the Messiah, and the enemy is locked up. It is therefore a time of peace on earth, like the Sabbath is in the week. The Sabbath is a taste of heaven, but it remains part of the natural seven-day cycle. So this seventh millennium of Yeshua's reign would seem to be a time of peace among mankind, but not yet a vastly different planet where the supernatural is the norm. Eight begins the supernatural, right? Not seven. We don't come to a supernatural kind of clarity and widespread miracle until that eighth millennium. At the end of the seventh, the enemy is released from prison for a time and the nations are deceived. They come against Jerusalem and are defeated with fire from heaven. The enemy is thrown into the lake of fire. All of mankind is resurrected and judged. And finally, we see the new heaven and the new earth, a whole new order wherein there is a flipping of the natural order and the revelation of the divine. God will be obvious, and the natural order beneath will be less obvious, right? Miracle will be the order of the day, the supernatural, and the natural will have to look a little harder even to see it. Well, lastly, today, let's turn to Joshua chapters 18 and 19. In these chapters, the final seven tribes receive their land. In the previous chapters, five tribes had already been given their inheritances. Judah in the south, Ephraim and Manasseh in the center of the nation, and Reuben and Gad east of the Jordan, along with half the tribe of Manasseh. I want to focus on chapter 18, verse 3, where we see that Israel has been reluctant to take the land God has given them. Verse 3 reads, So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has has given you? The word here for put off, like how long will you put off, is mitrapim, from the root rafa, which means slack, to sink down, to relax. So the word carries in it the idea of movement in a particular direction, right? Downward slacking. We learn a lesson here that adds to our discussion of transcendence. Remember that transcendence is going up, but it's a going up that involves first reaching down low and grabbing hold of the physical and gaining control over it, cleansing it, and using it for spiritual purposes, which raises up the physical, gives it holy, you know, reason to exist, It's about the spirit flowing through the holy physical vessel. The tribes are being given just this opportunity at this point in Joshua. They're being given the chance to take hold of the physical body, the land, the portion allotted to them. And if they can do that and finish cleaning it out, they can start being a light to the nations from that place. They can use that physical vessel for spiritual purposes. But fear is causing them to hesitate. What we learn here, though, is that when we are offered the chance to transcend and we hesitate, it's not just that we fail to move up, we actually slip down. Joshua says to them, how long will you be mitrapim? How long will you sink downward? Sinking downward is the opposite of transcendence. So what are we here for? We are here to overcome the flesh, to transcend. Let this example in Joshua be a warning to us that if we are not rising up, we are slipping downward. There is no staying in one place. We're either climbing or we're falling. Well that's going to have to be all for today. May God bless each of us in these critical moments of new light when he is lifting us upward. May we first of all trust that he is doing this redemption right now and may we rise up to the calling. May we trust him when he says that we can change because the price has already been paid for that change. And may we rise up to be the people he has created us to be. Shalom.